Well, it's so good to be with you today, and I always feel like I'm back home again at Church on Mill, although many of you I have not met because you've become part of the church since I was here, and uh, it's so good to see the church healthy and strong and vibrant, and uh, it's so, uh, so good to be here. I want to also say thank you to you for your partnership in the gospel because of what your church gives to the cooperative program, our joint missions effort as uh, Southern Baptist churches around our state, about 470 of them. We joined together to be able to send missionaries around the world, uh, some 3,700 that are serving in various countries today, and then also for church planting in North America, as well as right here in Arizona. Uh, we have uh, church planters that are serving among us that you help to, uh, to support, and great organizations and ministries like Arizona Baptist Children's Services and uh, all those other ministries that we have that are part of. One of those that you're a very important part of, which is Christian Challenge. And uh, Christian Challenge, of course, we have 13 different campus ministries around our state. All of those are, um, are joined to churches uh, for discipleship and ministry. And, of course, you all have the Christian Challenge here at ASU. I'm so grateful to Eric uh, for his good leadership of that ministry and uh, for the good things that we see happening here. And I know some of you are part of that ministry, so we're very grateful uh, for that. And uh, then also just want to expect, uh, express my appreciation for your pastor, for his friendship over the years, and uh, just praying that he'll be back with you uh, very soon, and I know that you are as well. Well, have you ever had to write one of those papers or maybe uh, an exam where you had to compare or contrast two very different things. Like, what if you were asked to write a paper about the differences between Sam's Club and Costco? I mean, that, that would be an interesting paper that tends to be your fan of one or the other. Or maybe, maybe a, a, a compare and contrast paper about Diet Pepsi and Diet Coke. That's always a raging argument, Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke. Or maybe you would uh, be more interested in writing a paper comparing and contrast the University of Arizona with ASU. Woo. Now, see, nobody approaches any of these subjects with, you know, just balance. They're, they're usually one or the other. They go off on one side or the other, and, um, and that's the way it always is. In the passage that we're going to talk about today, we see people dividing along these lines of those who oppose Jesus and those who follow Jesus. And we see that clear distinction. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3, where we find ourselves in your journeying through Mark uh, this year. And in this particular passage, we find these two different kinds of people. They're described for us in this passage, those who are opposing Jesus, those who are following Jesus. And it's really a study in contrast. And that's the title of the message, a study in contrast. And in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20, we find Jesus going back home to Capernaum. And you know that Capernaum is where he began to kind of establish his ministry. As that was his home base, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And he's now confronted with another large crowd. And as with most crowds that are around in Jesus' day, uh, they're kind of a mixed multitude of people that have a variety of opinions about him. But in general, they fall into these two categories. They're either opposing Jesus or they're following Jesus. So as we read this passage together, I want you to, to kind of look at this passage in that lens to say, okay, 
What are these people doing that oppose Jesus? What are they like? And then what are the people like that are following Jesus? And in particular, where do you find yourself in this passage? Let's start reading in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking around about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word, and we pray that you would speak to us today. Show us, Lord, what it looks like to follow you and what it looks like for those who oppose you. And Lord, I pray that as we see this passage, we might see ourselves and where we stand in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see these two different categories of people. And I would like to just walk through what those two categories look like. What, what are they characterized by? What do, they, what do they tend to do? And the first one is those who oppose Jesus. Those who oppose Jesus uh, have several characteristics, and one of them is that they say that he is out of his mind. This particular characteristic is, is represented by his own family. Verse 21, it says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, it should not surprise you to find that Jesus has a family. Mary had other children. And Jesus had brothers and sisters that we know about. In fact, if you look in your Bibles over in Matthew chapter 13, we find them described for us there. And I think it's important just to see uh, what's happening here. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 56... They were talking about Jesus, and they said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Now, we're told in John chapter 7 that even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. 
And that's very interesting because in John chapter 2, verse 12, after Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana, in John chapter 2, verse 12, it says that his brothers and his mother went to Capernaum, where we just found that Jesus was back home again, and they stayed with Jesus for some time. So they had observed and they had seen Jesus work miracles, and yet now they've come to the conclusion that he is out of his mind. Now, the word that's used here means uh, beside himself, not in his right mind. They thought he was crazy, that he had lost touch with reality. Why, why does he say these crazy things? They came to that conclusion because they could not accept what Jesus was saying about himself, about his true identity, about who he was. There are still people today who believe that Jesus was out of his mind, was was not really thinking clearly. Surely he was mistaken. He was misguided uh, in some way. They still come to that conclusion that Jesus is out of his mind. Well, those who oppose Jesus not only say that he's out of his mind, but they also claimed that he was possessed by the devil. This is represented by the scribes in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now that's an interesting name. Where did that come from, Beelzebul? Well, the first time we see this name mentioned in Scripture, it's in 2 Kings chapter 1, where the king at that time, Amaziah, who had fallen and injured himself, wanted to know if he was going to get better. And so he sent someone to, the, to inquire of a medium of the god of Ekron, who was by the name of Beelzebul. Now, the name itself means the supreme Baal. So they regarded this Canaanite god, this false god, as as the the highest on their food chain. The supreme Baal, or Lord of Heaven. That's what Beelzebul means. However, the Jews, wanting to degrade or deride this particular uh, god, started to call him Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Fly, an, an annoying insect. So to try to really communicate who this false god was, they said, oh, he's, he's just this annoying lord of the fly that, uh, is, uh, that he's inquiring about. And Elijah was so amazed that Amaziah would do this. He said, is there not a god in Israel that you could inquire of, that you have to go and, and inquire of this false god, this lord of the flies? So that's the first time that we see that name. Either way, it came to be uh, identified with, connected with, the devil himself. The false god of Ekron, the one who they worshipped, was the one that was the devil himself was leading them away from worshipping the true God, the only God of Israel. Now, this isn't the last time or even the first time that they will say that Jesus was possessed or that he was doing things by the power of the evil one. In John chapter 7, verse 20, they make the same kind of claim. It seems to be the best way that they could try to discredit him, you know, to try to, try to convince people that he was leading them astray, that he was false, that he was a charlatan. So they, uh, they made those accusations. And then they said that he was casting out demons by the power of the devil himself. Now, Jesus is going to uh, counter that and talk about how illogical that is. But I, I just want to pause here and just ask, you, you might have read or maybe you remember that C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that 
You know, those who say that Jesus was a good man, but yet wasn't who he said he was, is really not an option that Jesus left with us. In fact, what Lewis said was, Jesus did not intend to. He made it clear who his claim was and also proved that claim, but he said that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, that he was either a liar who was completely diabolical or evil, or he was a lunatic on the level of what Lewis said, a man who claimed to be a poached egg, or he was exactly who he said he was. Jesus really did not give an option in between. So these that are opposing Jesus, they were saying he was out of his mind or that he was possessed by the evil one or by the devil himself. They're really just living out exactly what Lewis had said about the conclusion they had to draw. Because the only other conclusion they could draw is that Jesus was who he said he was. But Jesus confronts them about this false reasoning, this faulty reasoning. And often what you find is those who oppose Jesus use faulty reasoning. Now listen to what they say in verse, what Jesus said in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, that may ring a slightly familiar bell to you if you are familiar with American history, because it's a rather famous quote from the Gettysburg Address. One of the times that Abraham Lincoln quoted scripture, talking about the division in our country in the Civil War, and he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I've often thought, how ironic that he would quote that particular verse of scripture in reference to our country. Because Jesus was using it in reference to the kingdom of Satan. So I'm I'm sure that Lincoln did not mean to make that kind of identification. Nevertheless, he quoted this verse, I think, probably out of context. But even Lincoln, quoting it out of context, recognized how illogical it was to claim that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of demons. That doesn't make any sense at all. In this passage... In Mark chapter 3, just in the passage earlier that you looked at last week, even the unclean spirits, even the demons themselves recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. And it wasn't just in that passage, but in others. They came out and recognized Him as the Son of God. They knew who He was, and they knew what He had come to do. And then listen to what Jesus says. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is speaking prophetically here. He's talking about what he came to do. He's talking about his own mission because Jesus came to bind the strong man and plunder his house. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus said Satan knew his kingdom was coming to an end. That's why you see all this demonic activity. And so he's casting out these demons, not by the power of demon, but by the power of God. Because his ultimate mission was to plunder the house of the the strong man. Because those who were sold under sin, which is everyone, belonged because of their, their sinful nature. They belonged to him and had to be set free or released. 
If you have your Bibles, turn over to Colossians chapter 2. I want to show you what this looks like. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Now, Paul is talking here about what Jesus did for us on the cross. About his finished work, his substitutionary atonement, what he did in taking our place, and what that accomplished for us. I'll, I'll start reading in verse 13, Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Jesus did for us on the cross, our sins, our debts, uh, our, our offense against God was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So that as Jesus gave his life in place of us, our substitute, it made it possible for us to be free from the power of the evil one, right? He's binding the strong man so that he can plunder the strong man's house. And what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus makes it clear this is why He came. He came to deliver us from the dominion of darkness, to transfer us into the kingdom of light, through the redemption of sins, through the blood that he shed for us on the cross. It's a beautiful description. But Jesus does that, confronting them about how ridiculous it was to claim that he was casting out demons by the power of demons when the devil himself knew that his end had come. His end was near. And then Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but, what, but whoever, whatever, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So not only do those who oppose Jesus use faulty reasoning, but they are guilty of an eternal sin. Now let's talk about this for a moment, because I know a lot of believers are troubled by this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The word blaspheme here means to speak in a dis disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, and maligns, to speak disrespectfully about God. Specifically, this type of blasphemy is against the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? What is it actually, how is it characterized? Well, I think there's some ways that we can see this playing out in Scripture that will help us to understand it a little bit better. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is only spoken of here and then also in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 12. And here are some of the characteristics we'll find, we find in Scripture about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The first characteristic is those who commit this sin resist the witness of the Holy Spirit. They resist the witness of the Holy Spirit. You might remember in Stephen's sermon on the day that he was stoned, he goes 
through the history of the people of Israel, and he talks about how many times they had resisted the Holy Spirit, that they had gone against God's direction, that they had sinned against Him, and he finally gets to the end of his sermon and he says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. So, what did the Holy Spirit come to do? How is it that He is resisted? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And as he describes that role, we can begin to see what it would look like for a person to resist the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 8 through 11. Jesus said, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The role of the Holy Spirit. He comes to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And specifically, Jesus said, sin, because they do not believe in me. A person who's resisting the Holy Spirit resists the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit when it comes to sin, about their need for Christ. And they say, I don't, I don't need Christ. I'm, I'm fine with God. I'm okay. I don't, I don't need Him. They, they resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding their own sin. And then concerning righteousness, Jesus said, because I go to the Father. They resist the leadership, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, convincing them that they need an advocate with the Father. Because Jesus now has gone to be with the Father, sits at the right hand, He's interceding for us, He is our advocate there. So the Holy Spirit helps us to see that that's what Jesus does. And those who resist that say, I don't need an advocate with the Father. And concerning judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And those who resist the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the direction of the Spirit, they resist the idea that there's going to be a judgment. No, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine with God. I don't need someone uh, like Jesus to stand for me. So they resist the witness of the Holy Spirit specifically concerning Jesus. Secondly, they reject the work of the Holy Spirit. They reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Just to show you an example of what this looks like to reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verses, verse 4. This passage has sometimes been troubling to people, but it really helps us to look at and to see what it looks like to, um, to reject the work of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and bringing Him up to contempt. So he's describing people who have seen the work of the Holy Spirit. They've seen Him work in the lives of people. They've seen what the Holy Spirit can do. They've even been able to be exposed to the Word of God. And yet, after all of that exposure, they still reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. They reject the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing that we find about those that uh, commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is they revile the sacrifice of Christ. Just a couple of pages over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, 
we find this description. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and thus outraged the Spirit of grace? Those three things characterize how a person would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They resist the witness of the Spirit, reject the work of the Spirit, and they revile the sacrifice of Christ. Now, in the years that I've been a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, I'm concerned that I have, I have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And usually that's because they've said something or they've made a statement or in a moment, a rash moment, they have said something that they greatly uh, regret. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that's committed in a moment. It's not something that's done instantly. It is a consistent and deliberate rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit regarding the person of Jesus Christ. It's a consistent and deliberate rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit regarding the person of Jesus Christ. It occurs over a period of time, hardening a person's heart to the point that they are beyond repentance. It's a lifestyle that rejects God's truth, the gospel, and the sacrifice of Christ. The reason it is the only sin that cannot be forgiven is because it rejects the very provision of forgiveness of sins that Christ made. So if, if you reject the provision that God has made for our sins, then that's a sin that cannot be forgiven. That's why it's an eternal sin. It's one that is committed over time. And I think this will make sense as we think about this a little bit further. In just a moment, we're going to talk about how people can turn. If they turn, it's something that, that can change a person's life and changes their eternity. Now, that's those who oppose Jesus. Those who oppose Jesus say that he's out of his mind. They accuse him of uh, the works of Satan, uh, and they are guilty of an, of an eternal sin. Those who follow Jesus, we see them represented in this passage as well. The first thing is that they are receptive to his teachings. Look at verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's serious. If you can't eat, that's serious. Now, that's specifically referring to Jesus. Jesus and the disciples could not eat because there were so many people there. But if Jesus and the disciples couldn't eat, then these people couldn't eat either. And what this passage is telling us is these people would rather listen to Jesus than eat. Now, that is saying something. Because they have gathered to Jesus and their hunger for hearing what Jesus has to say is more important than anything else in life. Now, Paul tells us that we should hunger for the pure milk of the word like newborn babes. Now, I have six grandchildren. I have one more on the way. will be here in August. And one thing I know about newborn babes is that when they're hungry, they cry. And they're not any fun to be around. They desire that milk. They desire that nourishment. They need it. And it's the picture of the way a believer should be. Not, not that we should stay as babes. We need to grow up in Christ. But that nothing should change the hunger we have for God's Word. And one of the indications that you are one of those that's following Jesus is a hunger for His Word, yearning to spend time with Him, to hear the words of Jesus. No wonder Mary would rather spend time with Jesus than clean the kitchen with Martha, right? 
She wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. Martha was always consumed with serving and making sure everything was just right. But Mary wanted to hear the words of Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Just to sit at his feet. But we have his word. And so that hunger for the word, being receptive to the teachings of Jesus, is an indication of those who follow him. A second indication of those who follow him is that they are related to him as family. Don't you love this when Jesus says this in verse 33? Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now, Jesus wasn't rejecting his family. but He was saying, there's a new definition. You are my mother and my brothers. You are my family. We are related together. And that's what Jesus came to do, to establish us in a relationship with God and with him together. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says that he is the one who sanctifies. It says the one who sanctifies and the one The ones who are sanctified are one. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you remember right after the resurrection when Jesus has a conversation with Mary? He says, go and tell my brothers and say, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Because now the price has been paid. The the satisfaction for our sin is finished. Now Jesus has risen from the dead, and he wants them to know, go and tell my brothers. I'm going to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God, because now we are related together. We have God as our father and Jesus as our brother, and now we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, we need that. We need that togetherness as family. It's such a privilege to be part of the family of God. You know, I, I have a wonderful privilege of being close to my family. I have my, my daughters and my children. They live just around me. And my mother-in-law, live, we all live very close together. And uh, we're able to, to help each other and support each other. But beyond that, the body of Christ, that's the family of God. And to be related together as believers, as those who follow Jesus, and to be a part of Jesus' family... Wow, that's a privilege like nothing else. So when we follow Jesus, we become his family. We're receptive to his teachings. We're related to him as family. And Jesus says those who follow him are resolved to do the will of God. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of God is characteristic of those who follow Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus said that in the context of this wonderful Sermon on the Mount where he is teaching them what it looks like to follow him. The values, the characteristics, the actions... The way that a believer in Jesus should live, how they, how they should go about life. And Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, but those who do the will of my Father. And he's describing to them what that looks like. So when you're a follower of Jesus, you're resolved to do the will of God. 
John chapter 6, John describes for us, Jesus describes for us what, how that will of God looks like, what it, how, it, uh, how it plays out. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus uh, said this. I'll find it. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Doing the will of God begins with believing in the one that God has sent to do his will, which is to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. And so doing the will of God place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then we begin to follow Him and to follow His teachings to live the way that He wants us to live. Those who follow Jesus are resolved to do the will of God. So those are those two categories. We see them clearly in this passage, those who oppose Jesus and those who follow Jesus. So is there a possibility that that could ever change? Well, I have good news for you. The good news for you is that the grace of God makes it possible for us to make that change. And we see that characterized in this particular passage. We see that with people who are described right here. So do you remember that we talked about the brothers of Jesus that didn't believe in him? John chapter 7 verse 5. Those brothers that were named there in Matthew chapter 13. Do you know that after the resurrection... In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus' followers are gathered together to pray, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so they would be able to have power uh, to, give, to empower them to be His witnesses uh, all over the world. They're gathered together, and it says that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that gathered with those disciples was Mary and His brothers. Isn't that interesting? They didn't believe in Jesus before, they even said he was out of his mind. But now they're gathered with the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit. What is that about? Something happened that changed their minds, that changed their opinion, that changed their category. And that, I think, is nothing less than seeing the resurrected Lord, seeing Jesus raised from the dead, seeing him in his, in his risen body. He was appearing to many, and I think... Many of those, some of those were his own brothers. In fact, two of those brothers play an incredible role in the early church. One of them is James. James became a believer in the Lord Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, he plays a critical role when they talk about Gentiles that are coming into the church and what they would require of them, making it possible then for the gospel to go to the whole world, to everybody, every race, every language, every tongue. James. And then you have a book in your New Testament that is entitled James. That's the brother of Jesus. What happened to James? You also have a book in your New Testament called Jude. Short for Judas because nobody wanted a book in the New Testament named Judas. <laughs> but if you read Matthew 13, you'll find that's one of the brothers of Jesus that was named. He became a believer. I think one of the most powerful evidences of the resurrection that we find is that those who were once opposed to Jesus 
then became believers in Jesus and were so committed that they were willing to give their lives for Jesus. That's what we find about the brothers of Jesus. But there are others. I mean, you don't have to read far in the New Testament to find the Apostle Paul who, by his own admission, was trying to destroy the church. He was persecuting believers and even on the way to Damascus to arrest them because they were believers in the Lord Jesus and and he had an appearance from Christ. Jesus appeared to him on the road and as a result of that, Paul's life was completely turned upside down. He was blindsided by God on that road. He became a believer. One, a, one who had opposed Jesus then became a committed follower of Jesus. So much so that a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce says that the world has yet to see the full impact of what that one conversion has meant in the history of the world. It's hard to even estimate what that impact was. So how does that happen? Well, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he twice told the crowd, you crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified the one that God has sent. And they were so convicted when he was finished with the sermon, they said, well, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And a little later, he says, repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The way a person moves from opposing Jesus to following Jesus is by repenting of their sin. Repenting of, of what they have done wrong. Repenting of the sins that they have done that, that separate them from God. And that bring God's judgment, His righteous wrath upon them. And, and then understanding that it's by placing their faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross, His finished work makes it possible for us to have our sins blotted out and times of refreshing to come. And what's more refreshing than knowing Jesus? I think we have a wonderful um, modern-day story that also reflects this uh, change. If you haven't read the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, I highly recommend it. It's the story of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was raised in a Muslim home, a Muslim tradition. In fact, he, he loved his Muslim upbringing. He loved the traditions of Islam. He was raised in a very loving family, and he, he was such a strong um, Muslim when he went to college. But when he went to college, he, he met a young man who was majoring in the same thing, and they, they formed a very quick friendship, and, um, and that young man was a believer. And so Nabil decided that what he was going to try to do was disprove Christianity to his, uh, to his new friend. And so he set out in every way he could. He began by attacking the uh, reliability of the Gospels. He said Gospels were were made up, they were fabricated, and, uh, and, and that's, that's what um, you know, some scholars have said, and so he, he tried to do that, and then he discovered that as he did more research about the Gospels, that they were historically reliable, accurate, and trustworthy. So he thought, okay, he'll take a different tack, and so he decided he would try to disprove the resurrection, and so he went after that, it's, uh, and he, used, he looked at all the evidence, and he discovered that the evidence for the resurrection was pretty strong, and very historical. So then he decided that one of the things that really disturbed him about Jesus was Jesus' claim to be God. How could anybody do that? As a Muslim, he could never accept that. And uh, he began to read the Gospels. 
Because he believed that Jesus never really claimed to be God. It would be impossible for someone to do that. And then he discovered that Jesus not only claimed to be God, but he demonstrated that he was God in the miracles that he did in his resurrection. And then his last piece, the, the thing that was most disturbing to him as a Muslim was the Trinity. He could, he could never get past this idea of three gods, of three gods in one. And yet it was, it was his, uh, his work in molecular biology that actually convinced him that actually it was true. And all through this time, this friend that he had was, uh, was just with him in this conversation, would just send him to different sources, would continue to have the conversation. It took years for this to, took place, to take place. And, and through that time, God was doing a work in his life. Until finally, through what could only be described as divine intervention and, and even dreams that he had, Nabil came to the conclusion that the truth was found in Christ. But it wasn't just that decision that indicated that Nabil was a follower of Jesus. It's how his life began to take on the characteristics that we just talked about of those who follow Jesus. He was not only receptive to his teachings, but Nabil dove into the Word of God and, and devoted himself to learning more about, uh, about Scripture. And, and in fact, decided that he wanted to do everything he could to serve God in ministry. And he was related to Christ as family because what happened after Nabil announced that he had converted to Christianity was his, his very family had rejected him. His parents would no longer associate with him because of their Muslim faith. And so the only family he found was the family, was God's family, the family of God. And then he was resolved to do the will of God. Even though it came at great price, he was resolved to do that. So he went teaching and preaching and, and sharing about uh, his faith in Christ and about the truth of the gospel. And you can still find his testimony on YouTube, even though just a few years ago he died of cancer. Nabil Qureshi, I think, is a wonderful modern-day example of how a person moves from opposing Christ to following Christ. But you see that also in the other examples I gave. Look at, look at how their lives demonstrate going from opposing Christ to then being receptive to his teachings and resolving to do his will and related to his family. So those are the two categories. Where do you find yourself today? Where are you in this story? Have you come to the conclusion yet that Jesus is who he said he was? Are you still wondering about how Jesus did that and the claims that he made? Does your life demonstrate these characteristics of, of really being receptive to his teachings, relating to his family as your family, the brothers and sisters in Christ, and being resolved to do his will? I think as we look at this passage, it's a challenge to us. But just know this, that wherever you find yourself, the grace of God is available so that you might move by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to be able to experience the forgiveness of sins, to experience a new life in Christ, to be a part of, of His family, and then to live out His will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. And I pray that, Lord, that as you have spoken to us today, we might respond to you. If we find ourselves, Lord, 
in a place where we've been opposing you. I pray that, Lord, we would, we would stop resisting the work of your Holy Spirit. Stop rejecting the work. And, Lord, open ourselves up to repentance. And Lord, if you're calling us, I pray that we would respond to you in that way today. And I pray that, Lord, as we follow you, that, Lord, we might be devoted, Lord, to your teachings with a hunger for your word, to be receptive to what you have to say to us and, and resolved, Lord, to do your will as we find it revealed to us in your word. And Lord, I thank you that as we do so, we don't do that alone, but we do it together with brothers and sisters, with God as our Father, with you as our brother, with you as our Savior, and Lord, together as the family of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.